Take the Hill, a leadership podcast connecting you with influential people in their field. So today we have a full house with Dennis and Angelo back in the studio, which I'm always excited to see. Dennis, Angelo, how are you guys doing today? I'm doing good, Patrick. Wonderful. I'm here in New York City, That's talking cool. to everybody from New York City. Ooh. Awesome. Are you up there for spinning thoughts this yeah. week, or what are you doing? No, I'm up here just on a little mini vacation exploring the city. We're going to Long Island today after this uh, taping, and then tomorrow we're going to be exploring Manhattan and just uh, taking in all the New York vibes, you know? That's cool. It's a great time, especially spring and summer coming around the corner. So awesome time yep. to be in New York, man. Dennis, what you been up to? Hey, man, I'm in Lucasboro, population 50. And <laughs> I, know, I got nothing to say. <laughs> That's okay. I was there in New York, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful out, sunshine, and I'm happy. That's all I can tell you. Good, good. I know both of our universities have just, like I said, wrapped up graduation about a week ago. Uh, so some summer terms have begun. Summer weather is starting to get in here. Everything's looking a little greener. So hopefully, like you said, you guys have the time to enjoy New York. Enjoy Luciusboro down there, Dennis. And uh, hopefully we'll get some kayaking. And I think we're going to think about doing a uh, episode on the pontoon boat this summer. Let's do it. In the air, on the water, it sounds good. See, air and land. Let's make it happen. We'll check all the boxes wow. this this, uh, this summer for everybody. So. I don't know if we can get the plane off the ground if I'm in there. <laughs> we'll just tie you on the back. <laughs> so we're super excited. This podcast is one that I think has been in the makings for a while. Uh, schedules, as we know, during the school year are always a little bit crazy. Uh, but Mr. Ed Travisari is in the studio today. Uh, again, just a legend in the music field, especially in Western Pennsylvania and beyond. Uh, just excited to have him in the studio to not only talk about his career, you know, some of the backstage stuff that you and I may not necessarily always get to experience when we go to concerts. Uh, but again, like I said, we'll we'll hear his story, and, and I'm sure we'll get to get some really cool insights. And again, always awesome questions. Uh, so, yeah, we're ready to go. We'll get Dennis back in here. And uh, you guys ready to start the interview? Let's well, go. I can't wait to talk to Ed. Me as well. So, all right. Here we go, folks. All right. We are excited to have in our studio today the Professor Ed Travisari. So, Ed, it's a pleasure to have you here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Wonderful. So, so for our audience, Ed Travisari is more than 46 years within the live entertainment field here in Western Pennsylvania and beyond. Sounds um, so old. No. Got to get those years <laughs> off of that bio. We just started about two weeks ago, actually. <laughs> well, we could do that one. That's not a problem. So, but... It's awesome. We're going to hear you know, where you got your start, perhaps even with DeCesar Engler, working as a production manager, talent booker, marketing, general manager, and everything else in between. Uh, you continue, obviously, to consult with many clients around the area. Uh, you know, Just to name a few, Heinz Hall, Seven Springs, the Pittsburgh Festival, and many, many more, uh, including even producing the Joe Grishecki, Bruce Springsteen shows at Soldiers and Sailors Hall, even the Bob Marley celebration uh, over at Benedum Center. So suffice to say, 
no doubt, Ed, you've been a significant influence on the entertainment scene in Western Pennsylvania. Um, and you're carrying that over into the classroom today by launching so many careers uh, in this field, which is super exciting to see. And, you know, we're definitely honored to have you here today. So oh, no, I, I appreciate that. I really do. Well, thank you. So can you just to kind of start for our audience, you know, how did you get into this field? Because uh, I remember you're you telling me a little bit about even working in Radio Shack and, and kind of just filling out <laughs> ads and getting started. Yeah. How did, oh how did this God. all begin? <laughs> you know what? I mean, really, yeah, the, the basis is, um, you know, when I was in high school, I was in a band, you know, like so many young kids were back in this was in the late 60s. You know, I saw the Beatles on TV like so many other people and was really, I think I might have been in ninth grade then and I was knocked out. I had been playing drums previous to that. So because I started like in about fourth or fifth grade playing drums and then I see the Beatles and I see Ringo and I even had my dad go out and help me buy uh, the black Strata Pearl color that he had, which I don't know how I got those, which I ended up selling for like $100 in 1970, which was really stupid, but I did. But anyways, uh, anyway, I got in the band and, you know, we had the local band nine to nine to 12 uh, grades. Uh, we were we were we were pretty good locally in the Mon Valley where I grew up. And I just had this strong you know, interest in music. <laughs> Excuse me. And then when I got to 12th grade and we graduated, everybody went to different schools. And so the band broke up, obviously. And I thought, you know, I could just stay in the band here in the Mon Valley and not go to school at all. College, that is. And uh, I was real close to that because there was just a lot of bands playing back. And this was going into 1970 when, you know, things were exploding musically. My God, you know how that was. I'll have to tell you. And uh, I thought, you know what? I should probably go to school. It seems like that's the thing to do. Nobody in my family had gone. Yes, just me and my brother. But I, my mother and dad hadn't gone to college. So I, I, uh, I thought, what am I going to do? I want to get into a music school but I don't want to teach music. I didn't want to be a music teacher. I knew that I didn't like any of my music teachers that I had, you know, my drum teacher was cool, but I didn't want to teach drum lessons or anything. So I was at a real weird time, like so many people were. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to Robert Morris because I just remember them being a great business school. They promoted, they were business. And I thought, you know, if I can't totally get into music, I'll do this wide business area that, can get me into like a lot of different things. This is what I thought. So that's what I did. I applied to Robert Morris. I got in and I went to their campus down by the airport, which was, uh, you know, it was a pretty big campus at the time, something like Point Park now, but out there on that huge estate. And uh, that's really uh, the beginning of it. And I go out there, but here's what really changed my whole life for music. I barely got through the first year, like so many other college kids, right? Not only the grades weren't great, but I was like, this is really for me, you know, because I wasn't a great student in high school, always wanted to do music, did some sports too, but mostly in the music. But, you know, in 1970, there weren't the venues that we have now everywhere, right? It just wasn't like that. So many bands were playing on college campuses all the time. Big names, you know, Billy Joel and just all these great big names that weren't big back then, of course, but they were coming through, you know, your gymnasium to play. We had the Guess Who, I remember, in uh, 70 or 71, and it was nothing to do with me, but I sat in the gym and I watched the Guess Who, and I liked the Guess Who. I thought they were good. And then from there, at Robert Morris, at least, they didn't have a huge budget, so they started putting a lot of bands in their cafeteria. It was like, for some strange reason, that's where they put the bands. And 
they really weren't very good. The only good one I ever liked was Muddy Waters. And uh, my roommates and I thought we knew everything about music because we had gone every concert. We were going to every show because I always tell the students tickets were like four, five and six dollars. Right. Even I had that much money. So I was going to every concert I could go to. And I was still playing my drums a little bit on the weekends. This is before I sold them. So. I remember one day I, I, I met the advisor. I don't know how I did this. And I said, so funny now, because me being an advisor, of course, for Pioneer Records and that, I could imagine some smart aleck kid coming and talking to me. And I said to the guy something to the extent of, who is booking these shows on campus? And let's say he says, you know, Patrick. Well, oh, good. Patrick is probably a really nice guy, but he doesn't know <clears throat> anything about booking shows because... <clears throat> do you ever see anybody show up? Because my roommates and I were like, we're going to go to the show. Who These bands are horrible. So he says, why don't you do something about it? And I said, who? I didn't want to do any of the work. I just wanted to complain. He goes, well, you got to get on the committee. And I go, all right, I'm just kidding. What kind of committee? And he goes, well, it's called Student Activities Committee. You know, in the Point Park, we have the cab, you know, but it's Student <laughs> Activities. And I go, what do I got to do? He goes, well, you just got to be on a committee. So I go, you know what? All right. So I go to my roommate, who's still my best friend here in Pittsburgh, but he was from New Jersey at the time. We were the only two that knew music the way we knew it. And I said to him, uh, hey, we're going to get on a committee. He goes, I don't like committees. And I go, I don't like them either. I said, but if we want to change this and make some music happen, we got to get on a committee. So we both get on a committee and we learn what it's like to book the movies, the concerts, you know, just what the kids do. I wasn't real active, but I guess I listened. The next year comes around and they're ready to take nominations. And I says, you know what? I'm going to run for president. I call my roommate up and I go, guess who's running for vice president? He goes, who? I go, you. He goes, who in the heck is going to vote for us, man? We don't have any friends on this campus. I go, that's not true. We had our own rock fans, I guess you could call us, right? <laughs> and uh, anyways, we won. So that was the really, you know, and I, I do joke about it, but it really did change things because what I was doing was, and I didn't know this, I was teaching myself to become a promoter because we had no music classes on campus. So I wasn't taking anything related to music. It was all business, just like, you know, our program at Point Park with being a pure business major. And now I'm sitting in a little office that they gave me. I got a budget. And I got a responsibility to book these bands that I've been talking my big mouth about. Of course, everybody's saying, oh, yeah, bring in the Rolling Stones and bring in. I go, what is wrong with these kids? Don't they know that these bands are like really expensive? So I was starting to realize that uh, this is really interesting, you know. So anyways, um, that was it. I formed uh, my own business sense to think, OK, I got to do all of this. So I got to book the band. I got to call an agent, which I don't know where I'm going to find these agents. I'm going to have to go pick up the band at the airport in my little clunker car because that's before they started taking tour buses. And then when I come back, I got to get a committee that says, you're going to work security. What do I have to do? I don't know. Just get a T-shirt on and stand in front of the stage and don't let nobody get on it, I guess. I, But I had gone to so many shows, I felt like I knew what the hell I was talking about. Anyways, we put on three concerts uh, when I was there. Um, most people don't realize these bands because it was in the 70s and we didn't have a lot of money. But the first guy, unfortunately, passed away, but he was a great guitar player named Roy Buchanan. He was a phenomenal guitar player and his manager happened to be from Pittsburgh. 
which I found out. So I went down to PPG Plaza down there where he was, and me and my roommate made a deal and brought him out to Robert Morris with Billy Price and the Rhythm Kings opening, which is what they used to do, because Billy used to open the show, and then he would stick around and be the lead singer for Roy Buchanan's band, The Snake Stretchers. So we sold out our little gymnasium, which was 2,000 capacity, and I was like, I'm making announcements from stage. I'm I'm doing all these crazy stuff that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And uh, I said, hey, you know, this is a lot of fun. I like this. You know, I might stick around here, Robert Morris. So uh, we ended up doing Sills and Crofts when they were just coming up as an opening band, uh, just literally Sills, Crofts, and a bass player. And then our third show was a band called Spirit, which was a pretty big band. And we did those three shows. I graduate. And I, I tell the students all the time, I thought, well, that was fun, but the fun the fun is over, okay? I don't know anybody in the music business. I don't know anybody from anywhere. And so I'm going to have to get a job that I probably won't like, like many, many kids do, just to pay the bills. And I'll play my drums on the weekend. I'll probably get into a band and I'll still go to concerts because I still had my four five and six dollars to go see the shows. And that's what I attempted to do. Uh, I don't tell many people, but my first job was at Radio Shack, like I told you. Sorry for spilling that one. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Keep that to yourself from now on. I'm not telling you anything. But, you know, I thought, you know, what's really funny is when I thought of Radio Shack, I thought, well, they do sell like amplifiers, not amplifiers, but like, you know, things that I thought were a little bit more music oriented. It was like stupid to me. So I'm working retail in North Hills, where I'm at now on McKnight Road. It's the only good thing about Radio Shack. It brought me to North Hills, where I live my whole life now. And uh, here's the lucky part. And I believe in fate. I tell people all the time. We got married, my wife and I, during that period of time. Now, we've been dating since ninth grade. So this was not a big deal. We just finally decided to get married. And I was at the Radio Shack. She was working somewhere in the city. No kids yet. and. Uh, I couldn't get a, a week off for to go anywhere because I was only at Radio Shack for six months. Guy said, no, you can't go away like that. And I go, okay. So I got married locally. We went local. And this is where the fate comes in. On the Sundays, I would always look at the newspaper because back in those days, as we know, that's where the jobs were, right? We didn't have the internet. And I'm like, I got to find that job. I'm going to find something someday. And I, oh, next week I look again. This is on the weekend I got married. Sunday morning, you know, ooh, I get up. It's a little bit uh, foggy in there. But I open the paper up, and I'm coming down. And damn, if I don't see this name, DeCesar Angler Productions, looking for a runner. Now, I don't know what DeCesar Angler is. I don't know if that's one guy, two guys, three guys, a company. I don't know anything about it. All I know is they're on every one of my damn concert tickets that I ever had. So that's all I knew. And I went to my wife, and I go, this is unbelievable. I said, this company, the Caesar Wrangler, is looking for a runner. She goes, what's that? I go, I don't know, but whatever it is, I'd like to be it. And she said, uh, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to apply tomorrow. And so the next day, from my radio shack, where I had the call from, with my manager, like at the end of the store, I called Rich Angler, who I didn't know who he was. But anyways, the long story is when I talked to him, and it was kind of funny. And I look back at it now. He's a drummer. I'm a drummer. You know, we talked a little bit about that. But here's what he told me. He said, you know, Ed, uh, and it was a 70. So Rich was kind of like in this. Hey, you know, I mean, I fired a lot of people lately. 
I go, oh, really? He goes, yeah, these kids, I don't, they, they just don't understand. This is a multi-billion dollar industry. He says, in, uh, they always tell me they want to work. But when I hire them, they don't work. They come, they hang out, they want to hang out backstage. He said, I saw a couple of the girls I hired the other day talking to the band and trying to get their autograph. I said, are you serious? I go, I would fire them too. And I'm only 23 at the time. He goes, why, why would you fire them? I said, because aren't we there to protect the band? I mean, that's what we're there for. I said, if your own employees are doing that, you're you're in trouble. Right. Ooh, he, he said, I like, I like how you're talking there. He said, you know what? And I had told him I'd produce some shows that Robert Morrison had. So I think he liked it. He says, call me tomorrow. It was a real quick call. I went home and I told my wife, this is unbelievable. I said, I mean, this was like working like, you know, at Alcoa or something for me. I don't know anything about connections like we all do now. Somehow the next morning I got up, I went back to work, <laughs> made the same phone call from the one on the wall. Boss at the end of the thing, giving somebody a battery or some diode or whatever the hell he was selling. And uh, first thing Rich Engler said to me was, oh, Ed, uh, listen, don't take this personally. And I go, yeah, what is it? He goes, you sound like a pretty good guy. Good. He says, but I don't need to hire anybody. I changed my mind. And I swear I told kids I'm a pretty laid back guy, but I must have not been laid back on this one because he loves this story. and We talk about it all the time. And I said, ooh, that's not possible. And I remember he said something like, what do you mean that's not possible? I'm telling you, I'm not hiring anybody. I go, Rich, you don't understand. I don't know anybody in this industry. And I mean, we're close, you know, and I can't get this close to something that I think I want to do. And the reason why I thought I wanted to do it was because I had said to myself a little earlier, I put my drums away. I still hadn't sold them yet, but I'm not going to play them and become that band that's going to be on some huge stage. So I always said to myself, if I can't be on the stage, how close can the stage be for me? And I didn't know what that meant, but I thought a promoter sounds like that's close because I know they book all the shows. I know they're at the arena every night. They're at the Syrian mosque and they have to be there. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool to be hanging around these bands all the time, not knowing the business that it was. So that's why I said that. And he said, uh, and it got real quiet on the phone after I said, that's not possible. <laughs> and I had to go to plan B. What was plan B? I'll work for free. Oh, did he jump <laughs> at that? As soon as I said I'd work for free, he basically jumped out of the phone and said, you know what? I'm going to hire you. Come down to my office this afternoon. I go, I'm working at Radio Shack here. And he goes, you're going to start tomorrow by picking up the band America at the airport in my Rolls Royce. I go, I am? He goes, yeah. <laughs> he goes, so you got to tell your boss down there that you're going to quit. And I go, I thought I heard something about giving the bosses two weeks. He goes, uh, well, you don't have two weeks. I go, well, I guess I don't. So I told the boss, you know, in a nice way that I don't have two weeks. And uh, what was really, really great, and this is another thing that was really weird. Remember, I'm, I'm on McKnight Road working at Radio Shack. Right. Come to my office this afternoon. Okay, where are you? He says, Babcock Boulevard. I go, right over the hill. Yeah, I've only been here six months, but I know that's close. And he goes, that's real close, stupid. Yeah, it's like right across the hill there. And I had not, I didn't have to move out of my apartment where my wife and I were living. It, it was really a weird thing. And so uh, that is how I got into it because he asked me to drive his Rolls Royce and, uh, 
I wasn't working full time then. I was only, he did pay me 50 bucks to drive. So I drove three bands before I went into the office. The first one was the band America, which they were on their way up. That was May 1st, 1975. Second one, who I have a picture right here on the wall, was Jeff Beck, who's, you know, was a, just passed away not too long ago, unfortunately. Great guitar player. He was playing the Stanley Theater, which they were booking at the time. So I picked him up because uh, Rich would call me and say, like, say a week went by. Hey, uh, you still around? Yeah, I'm around. What? He's like, All right, I need you for another gig. What is it? Uh, Jeff Beck's coming in with the John McLaughlin Mahavishnu Orchestra. Oh, yeah. And I would be really excited about these bands. He goes, you're going to pick him up at the airport. Be out there. It's, you know, 314 in the afternoon at Beckett Aviation. You're picking him up at his private jet. Oh, yes, sir. Put my bad looking suit on. I'd go out there and pick him up, take him. And I'd get to watch the show for free. And I just hang around. You know, I didn't have anything to do. Take him back to the hotel at night. And another week went by, maybe about a week, because it was like, yeah, it was one week, one week. And then the third one, he goes, uh, you're picking up Jefferson Airplane. Huh. <laughs> I said, OK, he says, and don't screw it up because Grace Slick is very particular. I go, I mean, I knew who Grace Slick was. And I'm like, OK, so I picked up her and the band and uh, hung out with that night. And then uh, I think it was after those three shows, he, he called me, he goes, hey, you know what? You did pretty good driving. I said, good. I didn't go to college to be a limo driver, so I'm glad that you thought I did good. He says, I, and it was funny. He was in a building on Babcock, which it's really weird. He was a one-man show at the time. They had like a, it was a multi-office with like one common secretary, and there was insurance people and attorneys, and it was, he was in his own little office. Now, on the day of his show, he would hire a lot of people, but previous to that, he did the booking, he did the marketing. I mean, he did it all. He says, why don't you come in and answer my phone? Here I am going to be a secretary now. I know I was going to be a secretary. And that was like three weeks into it. And uh, well, then I stayed with him for 35 to 40 years. So I did a lot of different things for him. You know, That's a long answer for you, but I wanted to give you the whole thing. I like it. I love it. Right. That's the real story, how we got started. And then, of course, I just did everything I could do for him. And that's what I did forever. You know, we owned the Stanley theater, which we bought. We were doing shows at the Syria mosque over in Oakland. Uh, we uh, then took over what was called the IC light amphitheater down at station square for about 25 years. Uh, there still was no star Lake in town. We were working on that. Um, man, we did everything. Then another big monumental day was we ran the Stanley from 77 to 83. We bought it. We bought Stanley. And uh, when I say we, they did, you know, we were just employees. But uh, we made that theater the number one concert venue in the country for 3,700, which used to be 3,700. Now it's 2,700. 3,700 seats and less. We were the number one venue. The very first year we went there, beat out Bill Graham in San Francisco and all these New York places. We didn't even know what the hell we were doing. All we know is we got a number one that came in the mail from Billboard magazine that says, you are at the top of this list. And we're like, wow, how did that happen? So, you know, it was a wonderful run, man. We were doing a Dead and Aerosmith and James Taylor and Linda, everybody played back in those 70s coming up in theaters. And then one day there was four of us, this Pat DeCesar, Rich Angler, myself, and another guy who's kind of equal to me. And I'll never forget this. They called us into the office. They said, guys, we got some really big news. And we were like, well, what is this big news? 
is it another big show we're booking for a week or something? I go, no, we're going to sell this building. We're like, what? And it's so funny when I think again back, they had just formed something called the cultural trust. And when they said cultural trust, I remember my friend and I go, the heck is that? Who needs culture, man? We're rock and roll here. They go, well, there's a new thing called the cultural trust. They've been formed by these heavy duty business leaders and their ideas to clean up downtown Pittsburgh. And we are the linchpin to start a theater district. And we're like, that doesn't sound good. And we're going to sell this building. We basically lived in that building. I mean, my kids like were raised in that building, you know, running up and down the steps and everything. And they said, well, you know, if we don't sell it now, we'll probably never be able to sell it again. And who knew what was going on because it was an old building. I mean, the Stanley was not the Benedum as it is now. It was a rundown movie theater and we were just getting through with all these crazy concerts. But here was the best thing going. The Syria Mosque, which was up in Oakland, was a building the same capacity as our venue. Didn't look like our venue because it was a Shriner building, but had the same capacity. Fortunately, that building was still up and running. We were able to make a deal with the Shriners to book and manage, not own, but manage their building and book all the shows in there. And by doing that, we didn't skip a beat. We just picked up our office from really the Stanley and took it right up to Oakland. So it made it easy to make the sale because I often tell our students, if we would have said no to it, I don't know what the cultural district would have done or what it would have looked like because we were just a very key element because Heinz Hall was doing symphony and they weren't going to become, they wanted a Broadway theater is what they wanted. And they were going to buy ours and convert it into, uh, you know, what they did. I mean, our stage, just to give you an example in the Stanley was about 80 feet wide, which is still about 80 feet wide, but it was only about 35 feet deep because that was a movie theater stage. And we did every rock and roll band, Van Halen and everybody else on 35 feet which is amazing. We used to tell the bands, you can't be too fat to play on our stage or you won't fit. I know Randy Bachman and BTO, you can't come in, man. You're, no, I'm just kidding. So when I take the kids down there for tours, we're on an 80 feet deep stage now, 80 feet. We could do three shows, but that's what they did. They wanted our venue. They bought the parking lot behind it. They put a whole new stage house, remodeled it, made, got the Benedum family to come up with the cash and uh, made it into a beautiful venue. But it uh, was a monumental day in our life, but it just, you know, life goes on, you know? Ed, I want to jump in here, and it's awesome to kind of hear you talk about how things got started with your career. Um, very humble, right? Like, uh, I know we don't want to mention the Radio Shack stuff too much, but, um, you know, su super humble beginning with it. And even when you talk about it, it just seems like so humble and approachable even when you're talking about these big name bands and acts and everything and i definitely have some questions about that but i i do first want to jump in um it obviously the music industry has changed and evolved and it's rapid and it's still changing technology and streaming and live nation and Ticketmaster and all this has just created a whole different landscape but the thing that really inspires me with your story is just how you know um, grassroots you were with it, right? How organic it was. You had this drive and this grind to you. What are some things that you think students or people trying to get into the industry right now, like what are these like grassroots things that they 
opportunities that they should be jumping on to just gain experience, to gain confidence? Like what kind of how like you were jumping on being a limo driver? You didn't go to school for it, but you went and you did it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like you took every opportunity that came about. What are the things, what are the opportunities that students should be looking into right now to try to grassroot their own career? That's a, you, you mentioned that very well. You put it all together. You know, I believe in that 110%. You know, just the backtrack real quick. When I left Live Nation, we sold our company to Live Nation at the end of the 90s there. And I was over at uh, Station Square running the amphitheater. And what, if I can, let me just go back for a second before I answer that. Is that okay, Ansel? Because I want to tell you how I got to Point Park, I think. And this will give you the feel for it. So I'm I'm the general manager at the IC Light Amphitheater because here's why. I told you I was very fortunate. Rich taught me how to settle shows. It's a, Hey, do you, do you know anything about marketing? I go, I know a little bit. I had a couple of classes with Robert Morris. It's kind of dusty in the back here. He goes, no problem. I'm going to teach you how to market concerts. Good. He says, you want to be a booker? Why not? How do we book? Let's book. Uh, you want to be a production manager and work backstage? I think that sounds cool. All right. Did all those things. And then I was about 40, I'd say. And I had done all those things up to there in different times, 15 years here, 10 years, whatever it might have been. And we took over Star Lake, the big, the build amphitheater. And it was to make it easy. There was two big companies coming together for that building, us and another company out of Texas called Pace. And Pace had an office here in Pittsburgh for a brief time. They had a marketing director. I was currently at that point, the marketing director. Rich comes in and goes, look, we don't need two marketing directors. So what are we going to do? He said, we're not going to let either one of you go. He says, but we need a general manager at Station Square. Right away, my hand went up. I go, he goes, you really do that? I go, hey, that's one of the last things I've never done. I says, no, that would be kind of cool to be a GM down there. So he says, you're in. So I did that for nine years, and it was great. It really helped me because I teach a class called Venue and Facility Management, which is teaching kids how to be a GM. What did I think I was ever going to teach that? So while I'm there, a student comes in to be my intern and she says, um, I go to Point Park and I go, oh, great. That's across the river. I can see it from my office here. And I said, what's your major? And I mean, I always got blown away by this when I talked to any of these kids and they go sports, arts and entertainment management. I go, what the heck is that? And they go, well, it's uh, sports, arts and entertainment management. I go, I, I heard that. Could you give me a little bit more detail? Though? <laughs> I said, I mean, I never heard of such a thing. It's usually a marketing major. I'm a business. You know what I mean? You guys know. And they go, well, it's just new. It was five years old, the program, give or take. New program started by some guys and mostly sports people. I go, okay. But they added arts and entertainment to the name. Hmm, I do like that. I says, I'm surprised. And again, it was, I hope you can tell, I don't have much of an ego. I go, but I'm surprised that no one's ever called us to come over and help teach a class, speak, anything. Well, I found out later they just they just hadn't gotten to that yet, okay? So I thought, you know what? I want to give back to these kids because all I could think is when I was 20, I had nowhere to go. I luckily made my way to Robert Morris. I did a couple concerts, and then I was lucky to have Rich and Pat as mentors, you know, who saved my life, basically. But I thought... And and I also should say, I have three kids. Two of them are in the music business. 
and my daughter is in the event business. But the other two, one's a promoter in Nashville. My other son runs the Peterson Event Center up here at Pitt. So he's in music and management. And they're all, my son's a drummer. Everybody just into it. So I thought, you know what, man, if I can give back to these kids, I said, I'd love to teach one class. That's all. And that's when I left Live Nation. I went and I said, like, I'm, I'm you know, out of here. And I went over to Rob, or Point Park and I was able to get the one class. And then, of course, Steve Tanzilli talked me into applying for a full-time job, which I told him, I don't know what you're talking about. I'll help you find somebody to do this. I said, I can just teach one class. I'm not a professor or a teacher. But with all of that said, and I've been there 15 years now, I, I tell these kids every day, man, first of all, I'm here just... I'm here not for the money, I tell them, right? We can appreciate that. I said, um, all of us are here just to give you something because we are passionate about whatever it is that we must do because otherwise teaching is all about that. And I says, and I never thought I would be that way. I I grew up near California University. It was in, like I could throw a rock to Cal U. And back in the 70s, that's when all of my friends from the Mon Valley where I lived in Charleroi were going there to be teachers. I don't want to be a teacher, all at once, all these years later, I'm like, I can be a teacher. But anyways, uh, to answer your question there was, uh, I tell them to take every opportunity, you know, because I still believe in the uh, grassroots mentality. Um, and I think it's important for our business, for at least the music business. And that's all I can really speak to sometimes, the, the big live entertainment business, that all the people that I still know in Live Nation and AEG and everywhere, uh, they still believe in that, even though that we want you to go to college and we want you maybe get a master's and all those good things are good. It's the experience and what you did that's going to get you hired. I've got a call coming up today after we're done with this and I'll be telling a girl who seems to be interested the same thing. And I'll say, listen, you need to build your resume. When I hired people at the Caesar Angler and I hired many people, they'd come in. I'd look at their resume and I'd say, oh, yeah, I see you went to college. That took about three seconds. Okay. Uh, maybe I asked what school was it. Maybe in this case, I said, you have something to talk about because we're a entertainment program. So that's even better. But then I went right to experiences. What did you do when you were there? Uh, well, not much. I worked at Panera most of my time. I go, okay, that's, that's not really good. So I tell kids, you got to get that off the resume. I know you have to work for a living and all that, but I need you to be in a club. I need you to be at the record label. I need you to go volunteer at Heinz Field because I, and I'm talking as an employer, we're very busy. We want to hire in many cases. And again, I'm only speaking music. The least path of resistance, I guess you would call it. I don't have to, I'm thinking, I don't have to put much time into this girl because it looks like she knows a lot. This girl from CMU didn't do anything, and I don't care where she went to school. I'm going to probably give this one the shot. I could be wrong. No big deal. I'll fire her, and I'll hire somebody else. But I'm going to when – I, when I would go to my staff, I would say, hey, we have a new employee here. We got to work with them. Hey, Ed, I got deadlines to meet. I don't have time to work with these new employees. And that's really what we would hear because we're putting a show on sale. And we're putting out fires. So I used to – I tell kids all the time, <clears throat> make sure that resume is strong. And don't be afraid to get your hands dirty, okay? I said, because nobody's coming in and going right to that GM's job. I tell this one story all the time, and you might appreciate it. A really good friend of mine runs Heinz Field or Acroshore, okay? He's the general manager. He's been the GM for ever since they took over. 
when I'm taking my students on a tour over at Hinesfield or again, Acroshore, I'll tell the woman giving us the tour, when we get to the main offices, would you please call this particular guy and tell him that we're out front? I want him to come out and say hi. And first of all, she'll always say, oh, you know who that is? And I go, oh, yeah, no, I know who it is. And she'll say, okay. So she calls and says, oh, he'll be right out. Good. So here's our 20 kids standing there. And here comes the GM out. Maybe a decent shirt, not a white shirt, you know, maybe just a casual shirt. He looks pretty serious, you know, and uh, and uh, I'll say, hey, everybody, this is so-and-so. He's the GM of this whole place. He's been in this building since they opened. And the kids will be like, wow. And I'll say, his name is Jimmy, actually. So I'll say, Jimmy, do me a favor. Would you tell them how easy it was for you to get here? And uh, he looks at me, of course, like I'm from, you know, some other planet. And he'll go, uh, yeah, okay. I was a usher at the Civic Arena. That's how I got started. And then I progressed to be a forklift driver. Oh, wow. And then, Ed, you know, for a while, I used to work security, and I worked security up at the Syria Mosque for some Ed shows. And they're looking at him going like, what? this kid did what? He said, so please understand. And then, they got, then he got a job at Three River Stadium, and then when they were tearing that down, you know, everybody was kind of going to either PNC Park or uh, Heinz at the time. And uh, anyways... I need him to hear that because when you hear those real life experiences, it really, I think, takes me out of the picture for a second and says to somebody, wow, that guy did a lot of crazy things when he was young, but he had to. And he usually referred to the money that he made, which was one not very much. And all of our stories are the same. I mean, I could give you every successful person that I could think of. And when they tell the story and I get them on the, you know, either Zoom or in class for a lot of things, including big agents from like CAA and everywhere. And I always say to them, tell them how come you're booking like the Red Hot Chili Peppers now. And they'll go, well, let me tell you who I started with, you know, and then I'll go through the story. So the point is, <clears throat> learn all those basics. Don't look to make a lot of money when you start. It should come the good people will float to the top, I tell them, and uh, it, things will work. But you got to you got to get that that bottom down first, and you have to not be afraid to work weekends and holidays. Because I tell them, if if you don't know that, I'm going to feel really bad when you go work for somebody and go like, I don't work on Easter. I'm like, well, didn't somebody tell you that at your college? So I got to be really careful about that. And I drive that home to them. Now it doesn't always work. I still get a kid go. I don't like you know, those those holidays. I'm quitting. I go, hey, no problem. It wasn't for you. But I'd rather you learn that early on than wait till you've already put four years into something. And that's not just, just me. You know that's in sports, theater, and live entertainment, you know. So that's kind of where I'm thinking on that, Angela. I don't know if that answered your question. Usually I give some long answer that goes off left field somewhere, but hopefully it means something. No, it definitely answers my question. And just um, I, I want to say also, one of the things that I really love about that response is, you know, I'm big into music. I, I used to play in bands and stuff. And it's like it's it's reflective and symbiotic in a way where like bands and artists don't just get on the big stage themselves either. Do you know what I mean? So like it takes a grind and it takes like playing a show. Like if you're in a band, you, you know, you're starting out playing to five people and four of them are your parents' friends. You know what I mean? And, and so it, it's cool that you have that kind of like um, synergy between the artists that you're working with and also being in the industry itself. It takes determination, passion, 
and um, sometimes some longevity to really get to where you're going. So I, I appreciate you expanding. No, that. You're, you're totally right on that. Plus, and that's a good point. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, I was there to watch those bands play to five people. Plus, I was in a band and I played to five people. In fact, I got my drums right here. I'm back to playing in a band again. So I am playing to maybe 15 people now. But uh, no, but I kind of I see that. So all those bands we did, you know, and we did all the club shows, too. So we just didn't do all these big acts. So, you know, I'd be there whenever the band would be doing, you know, not many people. And I'd say to myself, you know, that band really put out tonight. Like there was a hundred people here. I'm really impressed by that. Even though we lost money as a promoter, I was always impressed by acts that would act like, it's the way it is, man. Let's go out there and give it to them 110%. That hasn't changed. And if I was managing a band right now, I would be telling them the same thing that, you know, you're basically saying because <clears throat> they they can't be persuaded and misguided by everything that they've seen, especially coming up being young now with everything that's on the internet and the bands and they're all superstars and they turn. There are a lot of bands that get quick success now because of many things, but there's still that I got to, you know, I go through this a lot of times with bands on. Uh, oh, it's a long story, but when we talk about maybe going down to Nashville and uh, playing on Broadway or playing in places where you're, they're passing the hat, as we call it. You know, you're not getting paid. Uh, that's a big question in this industry, as you well know from bands. And, you know, we all can have our opinions on it. But, you know, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do or you don't. Now, that's up to the band to make that decision. You know, I look at club owners because I was a club owner. I was a theater owner. I understand what it's like to make money, but you know, I am a musician. So I understand that I wanted to maybe get paid for my art and all that. There's that flexibility. So uh, I think when I'm talking, and again, I don't talk to the students as musicians. One of the first things I say to them when we start is, uh, say as a freshman, hey, anybody in this class uh, play an instrument? I'll get, yeah, I play drums. Uh, hey, I play guitar. Oh yeah, I'm on bass a little bit. I go, good, keep practicing. I'm not teaching you any of that. We're just doing business and they go, what kind of answer is that? But I'm trying to explain to them, I could talk to them about playing drums and guitar all day long, but our program is to teach the business side because uh, that's what we learn. The other thing is, I just, I, I have an online class this semester and it was uh, talking to him last night. And uh, I said, your final project in Business Alive Entertainment is to become a promoter for the day. And you're going to have about 12 questions you have to answer. You can pick the band. I want to know the marketing plan. I want to know where you booked them, how much they cost, et cetera. I said, but let me tell everybody right now, when you, the first question is, why did you pick the band? And if you tell me it's just because you like them, there comes an F. You got an F coming real fast. And they laugh and they go, are you serious? I go, not really. But I want you to understand that please don't tell me that. <laughs> If you are a multimillionaire and you want to bring them to your backyard, I don't know anything about that. Maybe your dad has a lot of money. But when we're in this business, I've booked and worked 70% of these shows, and I didn't like the bands. But I liked them when it came time to do the box office, and uh, they sold out. I'd go, you know what? I like that country band. Now, I, mean, I really didn't, but you know what I'm saying. It kept us afloat. So, you, you know, now if you happen to like the band, I said, now, this was the good part about being in the business. When I would get up in the morning and I would think, Ooh, tonight I'm going and we're doing Springsteen. I like Springsteen. So while I have a lot of jobs to do all day and settle the shows and I'm going to be very busy and I'll probably only get 10 minutes to watch some of the show, I'm looking forward to it. 
On other mornings, I would get up and I'd think, God, I hate this band. And this one guy is one royal pain in the neck, but I got to get through it, you know? And so you got to do what you got to do because maybe it was sold out. Like, you know, there was (laughs) this band Slipknot. I was never a big fan of Slipknot, but that doesn't matter. They, we would book them a lot and they would sell out all the time. So my joke was to my friends that were booking, I go, no, I love that band. They go, no, you don't. I go, did you ever see the box office? They sell out all the time. They're really good friends of mine. Did you ever, did you ever meet Corey Taylor and talk to him? You know, what's funny. I never met them, but you're going to love this story because I'm sure you're very familiar with the band. Some years later, this is so weird, man. Brian Drusky, who books many concerts here in Pittsburgh and worked for us for years, and he was our booker. He was the one who was booking Slipknot. I'd say, would you quit booking these guys? He goes, they sell out, don't they? So anyways, some years later, he goes, you know what? You must have been a closet fan for Slipknot. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, and I didn't know the two leaders' names at the time. My two boys' names are Corey and Taylor. Oh, I'm telling you right now, it's so unbelievable. I had no idea Corey Taylor. I didn't know anything about that name. I just knew Slipknot because they put the outfit on, they'd come out and play. I'd settle with the tour manager. I didn't know about the band. My kids are like 40 and 42. (laughs) And it's about 15 years ago. Brian goes, Hey, you really liked them. He goes, You named your kids after them. I go, Why? What's their name? He goes, It's Corey Taylor. I go, Oh my God, are you serious? That's amazing. That was wild. Anyways, <laughs> enough of that story. <laughs> Dennis, I know you're waiting in line with the question there. He's still here. I think you may have froze up there a little bit. So as you as you oh, think about those moments, Ed, like yeah, you know, you're do you when you talk about that grassroot, right? They're bringing it every night, you know, and you're you're kind of maybe for those ten minutes, you know, side of the stage watching these bands perform in front of you know hundreds or thousands of people. Yeah. Obviously, there's the persona being on stage with the band, but kind of behind the scenes, can you get the sense that, man, they just really love doing what they're doing? And just the glances, the looks, and like, they're just really having fun. Yeah, no, exactly. I I, I totally agree with that. And that's that's why when we're teaching that now in our, in our school, we have a lot of kids that are going to be doing exactly what I did. And there are people doing that right now, or they can become the manager. I tell them, look, you can be a manager. I used to always, now here's where it is. I used to think I could never be a manager. Why was that? Because I was intimidated. I didn't have anybody telling me that you could be a manager. Now I know what I know. I go, you can be the manager just like that girl was the manager. And I, and there's a lot of women now that are managers. And we have a lot of girls in our program. And they'll be like, oh, I don't know if I could be the manager. I go, no. I know all these managers or a lot of them. They don't have any other background that would be any better than yours. In fact, less because they were not going through programs like ours. Or you can be the booking agent or you can be the record company exec. So I I have a feel for that because I can tell students that if I can get some of these people to zoom in and talk to you, you'll hear their stories are just like all of our stories. And so when we're standing on the side of the stage, like in my case, I wanted to be close to the stage. So as an agent, you're going to be in an office usually. So you're working in New York, LA or Nashville, probably if you want to be in the big business and you're going to be in an office as I I instruct them all the time, because we talk just about booking agents, you know, 10 AM to about 7 PM. That's your life. Now, 
you're going to go and see bands late at night. A lot of times you go out because you want to see a good band. Maybe you want to help sign the band to your agency. Uh, but you're not going on the road traditionally. You might go see your bands play once in a while. Uh, you're not standing next to the stage unless, let's say you're in New York and your band comes into play and they're at the garden. Of course, you're going to go and you're going to be back there because you're wanting to be friendly with them. But that's what that is. And so the manager was the same way. You know, most managers, they're the CEO of the corporation, I tell them all the time, top of the line. And they basically stay in their office. They're in New York, L.A. or Nashville. That's why they have a tour manager and a road manager, which, you know, reports back to them. In my mind, uh, the only reason I kind of maybe went more of the promoter route was, number one, I didn't know anybody that was a manager or an agent, to be honest with you. But more importantly, I liked that live, the music, and I wanted to be right by the band because I had been a drummer and I'd played on the stage. And I thought, agents probably don't get to see that many shows and managers don't. And I didn't know how much money they made or whatever. But when you're working at the venue, whether you're a production manager working backstage, which I was for years, whether you're the uh, person that settles the shows, which I paid the bands all my life, uh, you're close. Now, you don't get to see all the show. Right. I remember I remember one time I was doing Springsteen. It's a weird story, but it's it's it was what I did. I was settling with this guy and he's a good friend of mine. We've done many shows. And when you settle, that's when you're paying the band, of course. <clears throat> and it's a long process now. You know, you need your computer. We got Excel spreadsheets. I mean, it's not like the old days, right? And I tell kids that and we teach them how to do that because that's a job. But uh, I was settling and usually you're in some hallway down there where you can't see the band. There's usually no air conditioning in your room because you got the worst room left. You know, they don't give you the nice dressing room to settle in. So I'm in there and the bands are playing because you settle when the band hits the stage because now the box office is closed. It's time to settle. We need to uh, redo our deal based on what the ticket sales were. So we have to wait until that the, they close the box office. So the band's on. And in most cases, you know, you just you live with that, even though maybe you can hear the band. You're going, God, I wish I was down there to watch the show. So I'm up the hallway and I hear Springsteen do a song called Jungle Land, which I really liked. And it's an old song. He didn't do it that often. <laughs> so I said to the guy I'm selling, hey, uh, <clears throat> would you mind if we just put a little cap on this for a few minutes? I'd love to go down there and see Jungle Land. And he goes, that's a very unusual request. Actually. He didn't say that, but I know it's unusual. But because we were friendly, he goes, yeah, go ahead. I go, I'll be right back. So I go down and watch the song for about five minutes. I come back. I go, okay, good. I'm, I'm ready. I said, you don't want to do that very often because that's very unprofessional. However, I was friendly with the guy and he knew that I was a fan. But many nights you don't get a chance to really enjoy the show. And that's one thing I make it clear. If you get a few minutes to watch the show for a while, because you all have jobs to do when the show's playing. But it's like whenever your friends will work for the Pirates and they work for the Steelers. When I go to a football game every Sunday, I go as a fan and I enjoy it. And I do exactly what fans do. My very good friends that work there, they're not really able to enjoy it. They, I tell them, come to my tailgate. I go, you know, I can't come to your tailgate. You know, So the pluses and the negatives of working this in this industry are really good, but you have to understand that you're not going to be hanging out with the band, which is, goes back to the Rich Angler when he said these kids wanted to hang out backstage and they thought they were going to be talking to the band all night. I'm going like, what? And I didn't even know what the heck I was talking about. You know, I... But uh, when you're close to the bands like that, to me, it was fun because 
you know, people, I mean, I have all these pictures. And the reason why the pictures are up on the walls, because one of the things that when we took over the Stanley, we wanted to do something special for the bands. And back then, we used to give a lot of gifts to bands and that. You know, they still do it now, but that, you know, it's a weird time now. Everybody, you know, the big corporations go, the bands have a lot of money. They don't, you know, Taylor Swift doesn't need a plaque from us, you know, or a, a, a handbag or something, <clears throat> although some still do it. But in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't like that. So when we took over the Stanley in 77, that first year we got that number one rating, I said to Rich Angler, we should do something for every band that sells out the venue. So we were going to do a number one, which is what they sent us. I couldn't come up with one that, at that time to look good. So in the building of the Stanley, uh, <clears throat> off to the side, we didn't own it, but there was another company and they uh, did uh, plaques and they did, uh, you know, that type of stuff. So I went down to them and I said, look, I'd like to get a plaque for every concert that sells out. And I wanted to read basically the same. The Caesar Angler congratulates Bob Marley for selling out Stanley this date, the gross amount of dollars we took in, how many tickets we sold. <clears throat> and if we had some artwork that we could put in, we'd put artwork in the middle. And I would go down a couple of days before the shows. <clears throat> I'm sorry. And I would get them done. So it was a really a good thing. One is the band got a plaque from us, which they did appreciate back then. But two, it would give us a chance to take these pictures with the bands that not only became good for all of us just to have pictures with the bands, which we would never would have had, but I also took them and sent the picture to our trade magazines, which we got printed back then. And people all over the country really would sometimes look in the back of whatever the magazine was at the time. Like we had music magazines, either Performance, Polestar, et cetera. And, you know, we might get our picture in there and that would make us look very big, like in Pittsburgh. And it was just because we sent a picture with, you know, Billy Joel or Jeff Beck or whatever. But years later, you know, it was fun to pull all these out. So that's when I started doing this as we all did. But it's nice when, you know, you can present the band with something. Sometimes the bands would be so appreciative. They would be really appreciative, you know, because we went out of our way. One of the funny ones is I got one here with Bon Jovi back here. Right. And let me just tell this one, man. We were doing three nights at the Civic Arena when it was slippery, when wet, uh, it was a big time in their life. We didn't do three nights back to back in the 80s, but it sold out one night. The band at settlement with the manager said, hey, this was great. You think we could do another show? We said, sure. <clears throat> so we set up another date about three months later. We sold it out. We did three shows, then we did another one. So in one year, we did about 50,000 people for Bon Jovi at the arena, which was really amazing. So we're getting ready for that third show to come. And Rich and I were talking, hey, should we get him a big plaque? And he goes, you know what? No, I want you to get the biggest trophy you can find. I go, trophy, okay. He says, yeah. So it was a place called West Penn Billiards up here on McKnight Road or Babcock. I went in and the guy knew me. So I went in because I had bought other things from him. I go, hey, I need a big trophy for, we're doing Bon Jovi. He goes, Ed, we don't have any music trophies. You know that. I go, no, I, I know you don't. But I said, I, I'm looking around the store and I go, no, I don't need one of those little small things you got. I mean, I got to walk up and we got to give them something like this. So I look over in the corner and I see something about a four and a half, five feet tall. I thought, oh, that's the one. So I go over and I grab it and I, I, I take it. <clears throat> And I get inscribed on there, you know, we just blew the thing on. It says, congratulations for selling out, whatever. But here was the funny thing. It was 
for a cheerleader trophy. So there's a girl on the front with her hands up like this. And Rich and I, Rich going, what kind of trophy is this? I go, wow, the cheerleader. I don't know. He goes, we're going to give us the Bon Jovi. They're going to be like, what the heck is this? I go, he won't even recognize it. So I'm nervous as can be now. We're going into the dressing room to give him this. And it's like, it's a big deal. And they're all standing there. And uh, hey, uh, the, you know, the tour manager goes, hey, here's the promoter. They want to give you this. So I bring it in. I hand it off to John. John takes it and goes, oh, God, this is unbelievable. He's holding it up just like he won, like, you know, a wrestling match or a boxing match. I tell students, wouldn't it be funny? He's got it in his basement somewhere, hopefully, uh, you know, hanging over or sitting on some kind of a counter. And like maybe one of his kids come down someday and goes, Dad, what was up with this cheerleader thing? Like, what's the story behind that? He's going, cheerleader? I never knew there was a cheerleader on that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, it was so funny. He was so enthralled by it. It was amazing. But there's a real easy part where this girl's standing there with the two hands out like this. Wow. We had some funny days, you know. I don't know. That's why I put these up because it reminds I get yeah. right down um, here and I love okay. it. It reminds me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I could ask an intelligent question. <laughs> um, well, I haven't given any intelligence. Because I've been yet. sitting here having <laughs> but the reason I mean I'm just having so many flashbacks before you got on, Patrick and I were talking. I mean, I grew up in the I was grew up in the seventies and uh, my first concert was at Civic Arena with Ted Nugent and um, Greg Allman. And uh, wow. I think then I Seeger and then Stanley Theater I saw Nazareth. And, but anyway, those are all those days. <laughs> I'm having them flashbacks. Those where are great, man. Those are great. Concert, but, but, yeah. But, but I, I guess um, my question would be more about, you, you were talking about taking risk. And, and in our day, and I'm not talking like these guys are, much younger than us, but it was a little different in the 70s, 80s versus 90s and on. And taking a risk back then, I, it was easy for me to say, hey, I can do this. And I didn't have a clue. Um, and I noticed when you were talking, you said, hey, I can do this. Hey, I can do this. Just taking that risk. I'm not sure that today is, do you think that's the same philosophy as today, being able to take those risks that's a great question. And I think that's why, no, sometimes I don't think it is being taught by certain people. And that's why I think that the people that have come through that era still try to drum that message home, whether it's right or wrong, you know, we don't know, but it's what we've learned. And so I think if you've done this for a while, no matter what it is, you want to drive that home and you want to say, look, you know, you got to take risks, you know, et cetera, uh, whether it's financial risks or job risks, maybe you won't get hired at the beginning with the money you want, but maybe you should take that to jump to another one. And, you know, that's, that's a philosophy that I have. Again, does it always work? You know, I don't know. Um, I'm concerned about that because in this age of live nation and AEG and uh, all the different ways that we do things, you know, uh, the kids' perceptions might be that, I don't have to do all of that. I just need to jump into this job, you know, and get that situation. And, and I'd like to say that I know enough people that are still high up the chain that still teach that same thing about going down to the bottom and learning that I'm thinking I'm still teaching the right thing. Because when I talk to a, a high echelon manager and he says, no, 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 
I teach the, he's not a teacher, but he goes, I talk to young people about it all the time. Here's what I did. And I think that you'd still want to do that. I think that there's still something to be said about it. Now, will they do it only if people like us can spread the word, which is again, why I thought teaching would be a good thing because <clears throat> I like giving back. And I thought, you know, I mean, uh, it might help somebody, you know, and uh, that's why I did it. I mean, it's been, I can't even believe I've been doing it for 15 years. Because when I left Live Nation, people said, are you going to do concerts? Are you going to be the promoter? Are you going to book? I said, well, to be frank with you, at that point, I would have had to start risking all of my own money because I was no longer in the Caesar Angler or Live Nation. And, you know, you can lose a lot of money in this business. And we lost a lot of money. But our company could handle that as a company, uh, even though we had a lot of bad losses. As a personal individual, if you're doing the run the company, I thought, eh, you know, I don't know if I want to do that. That's one of the reasons why I didn't go into it to become another competitor in the market, uh, like Brian Drusky has done or something like that. He's a lot younger. And so he had that, but, uh, you know, I thought, you know, if I can go teach it, it won't be as risky, I guess you could say. And I have no risk at Point Park. I don't think so. Hopefully I'm okay over there for a while. <laughs> hey, let me just say one thing. I love, if you don't mind, I got another great story though for Nazareth. You got, you got to hear the Nazareth story because you said Nazareth. So we're doing Nazareth at the Stanley, one of different times. So it could be a different time you were there. And uh, they're playing so loud, okay? I mean, you could imagine on one to 10, they're like 15. And it probably was around Love Hurts, which was an awful big song for them at the time. And, you know, again, I tell these kids a story all the time, but when you're in the business that we were in, we would walk around, Rich and I, through the theater as basically troubleshooters because we're not just standing there watching the show. We're walking around making sure that somebody's not, you know, tripping or somebody got, I mean, you know, falling, I mean, or uh, getting sick or, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, and I walked up on the mezzanine, which was that first level at the Stanley, and I, the band's playing. And I see a couple of young girls at the concession stand trying to explain something to our women that worked there. And a lot of our women that worked there were retired people, like you see a lot of times. And I don't think they understood what these girls were trying to say. Plus, it was so loud, they couldn't hear. So I see this, and of course... I walk up to them. I go, hey, what's going on, girls? And they, and they got all these speckles in their hair. And there's all, and I, you know what? It was the 80s or 70s. I don't know when it was. I go, so that's the way their hair looks. But what's the problem? They, they're trying to tell me that there's something going on inside the theater that I should come see. So we open up the doors. You know, the band's playing so loud, I can't hear. I'm walking with them down to literally about the first row. Again, we're upstairs now in the mezzanine. And I go, what is the problem? And they all started pointing up in the ceiling where the chandelier was. We had that big, really big chandelier. And I look up and I see two little feet dangling up there, literally feet with shoes on. And I'm going, the hell is that? Here, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, it was a little different than it is now. Somebody came in through our fire escape <laughs> which they didn't mean to, but they were just, you know, on another level. And they went into the catwalk, which is upstairs. And when the catwalk, you know, kind of goes over top of the ceiling. Now it's, I always say, it's no problem walking on the catwalk when the lights are on. But if you don't know where the switch is, that could be a problem. So the kid was walking across the catwalk. And when he got 
over top of the mezzanine, which was almost at the, it's like walking in a high wire. I can't believe this. And he was very lucky when he slipped, he straddled the beam that you're walking on. Otherwise he's coming right down on top of the people. So those little legs were going like this. And I said, I went and got Rich Angler and our, and our uh, policeman. I go, you got to take a look at this. So they had to go up into the catwalk, pull the damn kid out of there and take him over to the jail. And I don't know, he had to pay for all. We had a big hole in there, but I'll never forget Nazareth. Every time I go down to the Benedum, I tell these kids, if I'm taking them on a tour, I go, you look up there, you see where the chandelier is? I saw little feet walking through there like that. Oh, no. Wow. I don't I don't think that was me, but uh, I don't remember <laughs> uh, doing that. But. No, no, no. Most people don't well, remember a lot a of things back then. I think Dennis, you're yeah. probably one of those ones in the alternate world. <laughs> Angela. And I've got... I've got three rapid fire questions for okay. you. Okay, go ahead. I'll keep they're, them short. They're they're all within the same kind of semblance of one another. So okay. the, the the first thing I want to ask is, um, you've worked with a lot of artists, a lot of bands. Um, I know it's a cliche question, Ed, but I, I do want to know personally, who, who's your favorite artist band that you've worked with? Like well, for you personally? Yeah, you know, I I usually resort back to Springsteen. And that's probably because one, I'm a big Springsteen fan musically. And two, more importantly, because again, and, and I know you guys know this, but the audience, we don't work really closely with the artists, hardly at all, right? We work with their team. And so the right. Springsteen team has been with him for a long time, uh, working up through the channels, just like what we did. But uh, And I've been very friendly with a lot of their people and they're just really good people. I love everything about them. You know, there we did big shows, big money, uh, stadium concerts, and nobody was mad at anybody. Everybody understood if there was an incident. Those are the things I look at. So working with him and his entourage in the day was good. There's quite a few bands like that. I mean, there's a lot more too. But I usually think of the band by being who was the easiest one crew to work with. Same thing with the band. Sometimes, you know, it usually is this way. If the band is a pain in the neck, their crew is a pain in the neck. Because I don't know, for some reason, it just spreads through them like a cancer. And I don't know whether it's because they think that, you know, the crew has to be that way just because the band is kind of difficult. But it's usually that situation. So, uh, and I try to forget all of those, but uh, I, I would say the Springsteen camp, as far as working with, you know, I always use my Bob Marley story as one of my favorite shows only because I love Bob Marley's music and it was a monumental thing that we did by doing his last concert and all that other stuff. But, uh, and his people were cool too, but, uh, you know, and probably because he died early, I look back and think, wow, that was, we were so lucky to do that show because those kinds of things didn't happen in Pittsburgh very often where the very last performance of a band of that magnitude would play on our stage. My God, I, I can't think of any others. And so that, that always was kind of my answer on what's one of the shows that, you know, rem you remember so well, but I mean, there was Aerosmith and Pink Floyd and all those shows. Yeah. I liked them all, you know, a lot of those bands, but, but that's Slipknot, not, not really. No. <laughs> all right. So the second question here is, um, and you kind of mentioned like Bob Marley, who um, obviously passed away young. Um, 
what 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 artists uh me and my friends play this game a lot like uh an artist that passed away young the jim morrison's you know even john lennon i think he was around age 40 and stuff any artist or band that that is no longer here on planet earth if you could bring somebody back and hang out with them for a day who wow who would it that's be? a good one i don't get that very often you know if, if, weird as it is uh well, I look back at the bands that I didn't get a chance to either see live or have anything to do with as a production. And that would have probably been Jimi Hendrix would be one, I would say. Uh, yeah, and probably, uh, I mean, you know, probably be all of them, actually. Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, I'd go through all of them. I would love to have been in the venue to either see them or to be affiliated with them at some point. And then the other one would be uh, probably the Beatles, like you just said, John Lennon. You know, I was lucky enough to do, I'm looking at these pictures on the wall, McCartney and Ringo, and got to meet them both actually, because again, we did the plaque, but uh, you know, it's not like doing them with the whole band, you know, and that would have been, I never, my one partner, Pat DeCesar brought the Beatles to Pittsburgh for their only show ever back in the 64. Uh, but I, and I was, uh, what, 12 at the time. I just, you know, I wasn't ready. My brother saw him, not here. He saw him in D.C., so uh, he always had that over me. He's five years older than me. He was going to school down there. But uh, but then, you know, you always think when you see a lot of bands, you think, you know, but when you're young, I'll see them the next time. You know, and then sometimes there's not a next time. So that's one thing that I look back at, but uh, there was nothing. We That time has was a bad time because we lost a lot of people pretty quickly. You know, fortunately, it's not quite that way now. But anyways, I would say uh, I understand this, uh, from friends that have seen Hendrix, that was something beyond because uh, we didn't have that yet. That's that style, you know. <laughs> anyways, I hope that answers your question. It does. And I love that you said Jim Morrison, because that that's my answer. If I could hang out with somebody for a day, I'd want to go out to the desert with the guy, do some stuff I can't talk about on the podcast and oh just li live the day with Jim Morrison. It'd be oh, the craziest time ever. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just wish this is why when you think about and I again, I go to as many Bob Dylan shows as I could go to. I go, you know, even though I'm not working any longer, I, I and my roommate who was my friend that did those shows me back then. He's the same way. And we always say together, we better go because we don't know if Willie Nelson's coming back next year. I mean, it's whoever, you know, you got to like them. I mean, I wouldn't go just to say I went, but I don't do this thing. I'll see them next time because, you know, things happen, especially when you're getting in this age group now. Like I went to see uh, uh, Graham Nash a couple of weeks ago over at uh, Carnegie and, uh, you know, he's 81 and, uh, I did a lot of Crosby Nash shows, CSN, CSNY. We did all combinations. And the last couple of times he came, I thought, you know, I'll go next time. And I, so my roommate, again, he called, I have an extra ticket. I go, I'm coming. And I was so glad I went because it was such a great show. And I'm of that era where CSN was another one of my favorite bands ever. They had a great crew and we did so many shows together. And then I liked them musically, you know what I mean? So that's the thing I try to tell kids that, you know, if you're lucky enough to like the band that you're going to be either managing, road managing, going to concert to see, et cetera, that's the ultimate. Uh, there won't be those cases all the time. I have a couple of girls right now that are working as tour managers and merch managers. You know, they're with Pentatonics or they're with Gabby Barrett. And they're like, you know, I don't really like her. I go, but that doesn't matter. You're still young and you're just trying to build your resume. Someday you might get that band you like because you're in control now and you might say no i don't want to do that tour but you can't do that when you're 25 you can do it later you know 
Mm-hmm. All right. And then the last question in this three-part mini-series is uh, you're a drummer, right? Um, yes, sir. So if you could play the drums in any rock band, what dr- or what band would that band be? Oh, that's a great question, you know. Now, I'm not saying I could play the music of the, of these bands, right? Because I'm in a band currently, and we do all classic rock, and I always joke, and I go, look, we're not playing any Rush, are we? And they go, no, we don't play Rush. Uh, but, you know, I, I, and it, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but uh, I'm a big fan of Kansas because we did so many shows with Kansas, and Phil Ehart, the drummer, is a friend a little bit, you know, and I got three or four pictures back here because – Kansas looks at Pittsburgh as being like their number one city because we they were bigger here than in Topeka, which is where they're from. I like their style. So when I listen to that, all the Kansas records, I think of myself, you know, and I do play, I try to play their music. So I guess that would be one band. I don't try to be Neil Peart. I mean, that's too much for me. And I don't have all the drums to go around. But uh, I, I would say uh, somebody like, Ken. now I like, uh, you know, even as much as, um, Bruce's guy is so uh, calm and he's not really a fancy drummer. You know, I like that style, you know, that straight ahead, don't have to be the star of the show thing. And uh, I like playing to a lot of Bruce Springsteen music when I get a chance to play. My band doesn't do that. But when I play with the headphones on, you know, I'll put it on. How about you? What would you like to play? Me? Yeah. Um, To be honest with you, it, like if I could be in a band, so I'm I'm a guitarist and 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 right. a poor vocalist, but I do like to 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 have that limelight every once in a while. Yeah. Um, so, I'd have to say, like honestly, it, it'd probably be Pink Floyd, and I I'd love for it to be during the Sid Barrett era, yeah. um, and just like go through like that avant-garde, artsy kind of like, yeah. you know, trippy and just really experimental phase of Pink Floyd, and just kind of be at the forefront of all of that. So yeah, I'd say. That's a great. Uh, that's one. kind of where I would live. Yeah. See, that's a great one. When you think about bands like that, think about how they originated the sound. You know, and that's that's what I, I love that too. You know, and we again, we were lucky enough to do Pink Floyd and Genesis at the stadiums and all these shows that you know blow my mind. I look over Clapped and all that. There were just so many great shows. You know, somebody said to me, "How many shows do you think you produce?" And you know, Rich and I tried to put a number to it. And again, this is not to brag, but we probably did. I know I did about five thousand. He had maybe about 6,000. Wow. He, he's five years older than me. But I did that by just taking math and adding it up over the years on an average and taking all shows, club shows, you know, uh, to concerts at stadiums, to the Stanley. And I took all the cities, whether it be, we, we did a lot of cities uh, regularly, like Johnstown, Erie, Hershey, State College. Those were on our schedule of a lot. And when I put the numbers to it, I mean, it adds up faster than you can think. Well, especially when you got a lot of years. And again, I never do it from an ego thing, but I'm thinking like, wow, man, that that I was just a little old guy from Charleroi. And it, it still blows my mind to this day. But anyways, that's why I uh, I love to talk to these kids because I'm thinking they'll go, well, like I'm from Blahnox. And I go, I don't care where you're from. This could happen. If it happened a little bit for me and I was no superstar, you can do bigger and better things because that's the way life is. But you know, you don't know that when you're in your early twenties, right? I mean, really you don't. And you know, somebody called me, I had somebody the other day called me He's one of our students. Well, he graduated and he's a musician and he wanted some more advice. I go, okay, what do you want me to tell you? 
I want to keep trying this to make it, but how long should I go before I let go of what I learned in the business world in the program? And that's, that's a question I get a lot. And here's what I tell them. I go, look, <clears throat> I would support anybody that wants to be a musician coming out of the program. Uh, we have a lot of like that where the kids graduate and they form a band and now they want to go and they make a move. I said, and uh, you've got to try it because I had that with my own son who was a drummer and he went on the road for about five years after he had gotten into a, a concert business. But I say to myself, you don't want to wake up when you're 35 or 40 and go, man, I should have tried that. I think I could have done it. You know, at least try it. On the other hand, think about that and maybe put the clock on, I call it, because I've had other friends that keep on trying and now they wake up one day and they're like 45 or 46 and now they're playing at the Holiday Inn on the weekends, okay? They're just not doing very well. And it's almost too late to really get into the business side of it because they want these young college kids. So, you know, you make your own decision, I said, but we had a band called Nevada Color, which came out of our school. Uh, you know the band, right? They're a good band, man. This Max Absolutely, Cabal. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Max Kowalczyk and Adam Valen were two of my students, and they didn't know each other, and they formed this band there, and I became friendly with them. And, uh, I, you know, I talked to Max all the time, and Max called me, uh, whoa, you know, I don't know, about three years ago, and he goes, Ed, I think uh, the time's up on this band. I go, why, what's up? They had a manager, but they didn't have the record label. You know, you got to have that record label. He said, we just can't seem to get a record deal. And I go, yeah. And every time I would call him to tell him about a job, he, when he was still playing, he would go like, ah, I can't take that because we're recording in Nashville next week. So he said, I'm driving Uber just to make money. And I got that. And and uh, Adam was working for Drusky. And anyways, he had to make up his own mind. And he finally said, I think I'm going to let it go. So he said, I want to go to New York. I'd like to maybe work for a record label because he liked that. So we were able to get him to New York and he works for Elektra now and he's doing phenomenal. And the artist touring division has all these bands under him. And I tell kids all the time, he plays his guitar on the weekends and all that, but he's just couldn't get in that tour bus and drive off because, and he wanted to get it started before he was too old. That's just his, and Adam's the same thing. He's doing very well for Brian Drusky as his marketing director because the band kind of fizzled after Max left. But I told this one kid, keep trying it, you know, but you, what's your game plan? I mean, do you have a plan? You know, what, what, let's see it. And then keep in mind what I just told you. And he goes, yeah, you know what? I think I will. So that's the way you have to be when you're in a musician. You know, it's I don't want to see him wake up when it's too late because I have friends that they're not doing real well in, in the business side because they thought they could make it. And it's not easy. I mean, you know, it's like sports. It's like theater. It's all the same. Yeah, really good advice, like you said, just for life. And one more quick question. Can I, oh, I just had one more quick question. Oh, okay. sure, Dennis. Um, I was at I was at the Genesis concert in Three Rivers. So I remember that one. Uh, oh. That was a good concert. Um, but um, when it comes to vocals, like I, I was at a Journey concert once, and I wasn't a huge Journey fan. But man, when he sung, when Steve Perry sung, you knew... I mean, it just said chills up your back. So when you speak of some of the artists today who have all the different functions to help their voices and stuff compared to back in the day when it was natural. And so who who is one of your your favorite vocalists from a natural standpoint? 
Oh, back in the day like that. Well, you know, uh, it's kind of hard to say, you know, but uh, I, I think a lot of those bands have played back then, you know, which you say were straight ahead vocalists and they really didn't have much to do that. And it could have been anything. I was always a big Aerosmith fan. So, so Steve Tyler, you know, uh, was a guy that I really enjoyed for a number of reasons and I still really like him. So it's somebody like him makes me think, I don't think about too many of the other glam bands too much, but then on the other hand, I think of a lot of jazz bands. I used to love El Jarreau, George Benson. I loved all those guys. We did, you know, one thing about the Stanley was, which I really enjoyed was when we bought that building, one thing we said as a team, we are just not going to do rock and roll in here. And then we'd be like, well, wait a minute. We're all, we all were rock kind of people. Rich Angler was a rock drummer. Pat, you know, was a little older, brought the Beatles in and myself and somebody else. But one thing that I really enjoyed was they said, no, if there's some jazz out there, we're going to bring jazz in. If there's country, we're bringing country in. If there's middle of the road, we're bringing the middle of the road which really was fun for me because I wasn't as privy to like, say the jazz music that I became friends with weather report and all those bands, you crusaders, I can go on and on. And I'm so glad that we did because so many of those bands were so great and they had many of them had great vocalists, you know, at the time, or even like, you know, R and B bands and those Motown bands. I would have never thought I wanted to be into that. So I heard a lot of great singers back then like that too, but I, I agree. You know, it's kind of funny you say that. I just did Frankie Valley two weeks ago at Heinz Hall. He just turned 89. Wow. 89. And he's still out there. But somebody said, I hear he lip syncs. I go, okay. He's singing along to a little bit of music. But he's 89 years old. You know, I mean, come on, give it to the guy that... You know, you can't sing Big Girls Don't Cry at 89 and bring out those same vocals, man. But he has a good group of young men behind him, which I call the Backstreet Boys because they're these good looking boys and they sing all those parts. But he still looks good. Nice little suit, nice hair. You know, he's he comes out and he sings along with it. But, you know, they enhance it a little bit. I'm not you know, speaking out of line, probably. And but, you know, I would prefer not to see that for the younger bands. You know, I can understand when you're that age, you know. Right. Amazing. 89. Yeah. Did a great show. People, the reviews were raving reviews. I got a few from radio stations from tickets we gave away afterwards. And I don't normally get those. And they go, I got to send you these uh, emails we got because I think you should see it. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, it's probably a complaint. That's the only thing I ever get. And it was like, oh, my God, his show was phenomenal. I'd go tomorrow. And I said to the GM at the Heinz Hall, you better book him right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no doubt, Ed, like I said, we can probably spend hours and hours talking about bands. But I know your, your time, you got some meetings this afternoon. Yeah. As you look back, Lisa, amazing career, amazing experiences. You know, what are what are some things that you personally take away, you know, just from this journey as, as you look at this experience collectively? Well, that's good. Well, from the concert side of it, it was probably uh, all the uh, relationships that I got to be a part of and, and all the shows that I got to see, too. Of course, there were some great ones and there was some that not so good, like I told you. But, you know, it just took me to different cities that I would have probably never been to. I met different managers of bands and agents and building managers that I stayed friends with for 35 years that 
I'm still friends with like here in Pittsburgh, so many people that are still working in the business that I can still call on for things. And it'll be like, wow, man, we had some great days, you know? So usually it's relationships. It's interesting that a lot of my friends who are still working, they don't forget those days too. Like when I talk to them, I'll see, like they're working at a show and they'll see me and I'll go, oh, Ed, remember the time we did yes down here? And I go, I guess hardly ever, but then, you know, kidding with them. And they go, oh man, and you brought me backstage and you introduced me to the band and you didn't even know who I was. And I'm thinking, and I don't even remember doing that, but you know what? If it's a little different now to try to get somebody to meet the band is like meeting, you know, you know, it's tough. <laughs> yeah. Back then, I hear stories all the time that uh, somebody will meet me and they'll go, no, you, you, we met one time and I, I had this special book I wanted to give to Kansas or Alice Cooper. And uh, you took me back and I was in the meet and greet. I go, oh, that was good. Uh, did you enjoy it? And they go, oh my God, it was life changing, you know? And I'm thinking, man, you know what? These You can't do that now, you know? First of all, people were paying for meet and greets and if you're not part of the paid meet and greet, you know, and I would bring you guys back and I'd go like, who are these people? And I'd go like, oh, they're friends of mine. Did they pay? I mean, you know, it, it's sad, but it's a different day. Those, the the, the, the relationships uh, and the people I got to meet were probably some of the best uh, times of that <clears throat> before I came to Point Park. And, you know, in Point Park, it's been, uh, man, all the kids, you know, all relationships with the kids. And I like... And I'm sure you're the same way, Patrick. We like to stay in touch with these kids. And man, the t when I go to Nashville and I talk to the kids down there or LA, you know, I'm like talking to like an extended child of my own. At least I want to think that. Cause like, what are you doing? You know, how are you doing? You know, are you doing well? That I never thought I would have that, you know? And so that's what keeps me going for at least right now. Awesome. And we can't let you go because we want to make sure that how our audience can stay in tune with your shows. Because I know you're back out on the scene. You have a few tour dates coming up this summer, which I know I'm going to try to get to a few of them ourselves. But how can our audience follow your schedule and 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 find out where you're playing uh, so that we can come uh, check you out? You're, now it's in my band you're talking about, right? That's correct. Good karma, by the way. We're good karma. We're giving you some good karma. We have a Facebook page. So if you just check us out on Facebook, you'll see the list there. And it's, you know, it's a fun thing. I mean, when I got to Point Park, I realized I had more time off. So I jumped into a band and we're uh, we're a six piece uh, classic rock band and we'll do like a lot of uh, wineries and things of that sort. We play Narcissi up here and McCandless Crossings, which is in my neighborhood and um, Nemo we're playing. But, you know, it's it's fun because I still like going and doing it because we're doing songs that I like to play and people seem to be enjoying. It. And we got a good group of people in the band. So it's kind of fun. But, yeah, come see Good Carmen and tell me that you were listening. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Like I said, we'll throw that in the show notes, make sure people can All check right. in with you. But good. I'm still promoting. See that? I didn't even know that. I love I'm it. Still promoting. I love it. Natural. Yeah. Part of what you do. Tell my band that I was still promoting today when I did this. <laughs> so we won't even charge you for the airtime. How's that? All right. Good. I'll trade you some tickets. How's that? I big on trade. Perfect. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. So, or at least give me one of the security t-shirts. <laughs> I got some. I got them right here. <laughs> well, Ed, honestly, it was a Thank pleasure you. to have you here today. Okay. No problem. We were we we're waiting for it for a while, but uh yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing your time with us and love the story. That was great. Oh, I love talking about the things like that. So this was perfect and I hope it was okay, you know. It was awesome. So Okay, great. All right. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, guys.
See you soon. Appreciate it. Yep. All right, everybody. The legendary Ed Travisary has just left the studio. Uh, Angelo, final thoughts. What do you think? I uh, I love everybody that we talked to on this show, but this one just personally um, just hits so many different areas for me. I admire Ed as a professor at Point Park. He was one of the first professors I ever met uh, coming here. Um, I love his humble beginnings and it, that that just um, that poise that that he carries with him. You know, he doesn't ever seem to um, starstruck by the people that he works with. And I think that that's, you know, some intangible advice that, you know, some listeners who might be wanting to get into the industry to take away from this is just how he looks at these artists as human beings, doesn't put them too much on a pedestal. Uh, and, and Ed is just somebody who I, I think that there's no podcast long enough to, to actually extract all of the experience and all of the nuance of what he's done. So um, awesome guy. Uh, the sports art entertainment management program is is a top tier program, um, and because of uh, professors like Ed and and the experience that he brings, so loved having him on the show. Excellent. Yeah, likewise. And what's so cool is, again, just think about the span of his influence in the in this area, Western Pennsylvania and beyond. Uh, you know, shows that you attended, Angelo, and and not putting you on the spot, Dennis. Shows that you attended maybe 30, 40 years ago. Like you said, he was producing as well, you know, so it's, uh, it's amazing. Dennis. Yeah. I'm thinking my first show was 40, 40 some wow. years ago. I mean, um, like I said, it was in the seventies and, uh, but it was nice meeting him, but it was, I was kind of selfish for me because it just started reminding, I was sitting here just remembering a lot of, uh, things I did in the past. Some of them I don't remember. Honestly, I don't, Patrick. But I do remember a lot of them. Yeah. Um, you know, there was good times. They were different times. Yeah. Uh, the 70s were were something, man, especially for music. And uh, I, I could have asked him a million questions about a dozen different bands. And and I'm sure he, uh, he would have had a good story for it. Um, but no, I really enjoyed it. It was selfish for me. It was uh, kind of, I was being selfish and thinking about my past and <coughs> oh, excuse me. Yeah, well, I hope you can edit that out. <laughs> we can make that work for anyway, sure. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. And then remind me, I, I mean, just like, just the chance, the, the thought that I was probably even at that Nazareth show and the guy's feet were dangling. <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't even remember that or probably even noticed it, but uh, I do remember their music was loud. Um, but again, um, it was just, I don't know. It was just awesome. Yeah. And like I said, he's definitely someone like I said, and he didn't have to necessarily be in front of the stage. Like I said, it had that, you know, that role that he wanted to be, you know, right there on the side and, and creating the memories for so many thousands of people over the years. So, so Angelo, enjoy the rest of your time in New York. I hope it's wonderful. Dennis, always great to have you back. We'll uh, no doubt have some more adventures for everybody out there in our audience. Uh, just stay tuned over the upcoming summer months. And uh, like I said, we'll stay in touch. Be well. And we're going to close out this episode with Ed Travisari. So we'll see everybody soon. One update. One update. The boat's in the water.
Okay. The boat's in the water. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Put it on the schedule. <laughs> so. All right, everybody. See you soon.